listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Adam Pryor. I work at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. The modern luxury, which I could not live without, is GPS. Because uh, I would literally be lost amen. all of the time. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and the modern luxury that I couldn't live without, though it's not all that modern, is indoor plumbing. I mean, technically the Minoans had it 4,000 years ago, but it wasn't widely available until just the past couple hundred years. (laughs) Kendra Holtmore, assistant professor of religion at Bethany College, and the modern luxury that I would find it very difficult to live without is the internet which is pretty broad but i use youtube i love youtube youtube i feel like half the things i know how to do as like a normal person come from youtube ian benz associate professor of elementary science education at unc charlotte and the modern luxury that i don't know if i could do without probably be easy transportation Mm. you don't want a horse and buggy situation no mm mm-hmm I would struggle without the ability to for transportation. And I, I don't want to say car because when I was in Germany, I did not have access to a car for six and a half weeks, but I was very easily able to get around because of buses and public transportation. Right. So mm. yeah, it'd be hard to live without all that. Yeah. And all that horses, lots of horse poop. Yeah, in the road. exactly. And then smell funny. Yeah. They didn't have indoor plumbing either. And so there's a lot of problems. Yeah. Or GPS or internet. Right. So Yeah. Somehow the species made it through. (laughs) So doesn't the Air Force still own GPS and they just like lend it to the public? Oh, I don't know. See, we could use the current modern luxury that we all have to look that up if we wanted to. I'm pretty sure that the satellites up there are owned by the military and uh, they just let us use them. And if they ever wanted to, they could shut us down and we'd all be lost and wouldn't know how to get to Burger King anymore. Or I wouldn't even know where Lindsborg, Kansas is anymore. (laughs) And you know what that that would make me very anxious if I couldn't get to Burger King. Speaking of what is owned by the U.S. government (laughs) (laughs) and it's operated by the U.S. Space Force now. Oh, oh, they gave it to Space it? Force. Of course they did. I mean, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> there is no air. So the Air Force That's didn't correct. make all That's that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, for today's episode, uh, we're going to talk about anxiety. And um, I want to start with a story, a personal story, and then... Uh, go into some questions and conversation around it um, and if, see if I can coax my co-hosts to share any experiences they've had as well before we then delve into anything else specific. But um, so I want to kind of share a story that happened to me in the summer of 2016. It was a time that I was uh, putting together my tenure dossier. Kendra, you're far enough off, so hopefully this won't freak you out. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but in that time, I was dealing with issues with a summer program that I was running. I was a lot of stress with some of the students. Um, I was in the process of training for several different races, several Spartan races, a team running race. I was an overnight type running race. And I had noticed, and I was an asthma, or I am an asthmatic. And so I have more seasonal um, asthma during the summer. And so I just noticed that I would get really short of breath after work or after working out or something like that, even though I was in uh, fairly decent shape. And so I kind of just would chalk it up to it's my asthma. So I kept treating it the same way, but I also started noticing too that my inhalers weren't working very well. And so again, I just figured it was the asthma. And um, doctors started running a bunch of tests. They actually put me in a stress test. They were starting to worry about my heart. So a lot of things were happening at the same time. And But they found that everything was going back to normal. Um, the person that I was seeing, the counselor I was working with at the time said, you know, with the tenure dossier and the stuff with uh, the summer program and all these races, she started saying, you've got too much on your plate. You need to withdraw from something. Uh, you're just overwhelming yourself. And that's why you're struggling. But we still never got into this conversation around anxiety. Um, and so I did withdraw from the big team race, which, of course, created more angst because I felt like I let everybody down, even though it was several months before. 
And so one time uh, after a workout, it was on a Saturday, I was putting away the dishes and I kept looking at Ann and just kind of saying, and the kids were in the kitchen and I kept just telling her I'm really short of breath. Um, and just felt like I was about to have an asthma attack. And she said, well, you know, go to the urgent care and get checked out. And so I did, um, I get to the urgent care, they start running tests. They realize your oxygen level is fine. We don't have the equipment to really figure out what's going on. You need to go to the ER. I said, all right. So I go to the ER and drove myself there, of course, cause I was an idiot, um, <laughs> while still struggling <laughs> with breathing, but figured it was nothing. So they, so they start hooking me up to a bunch of different machines and, um, they start running all these tests and the doctors there and uh, the nurses and the doctor were just kind of like, everything's coming back to normal. And then the ER doc, one of the main ER docs kind of just, you know, walks in casually and starts looking at some of the stuff. And he just kind of says to me, have you ever had an anxiety attack before? And I kind of said, well, no, I don't, I don't think so. And then right after I said, no, I don't think so. I had an anxiety attack. And, um, hmm. What was interesting is that it, I've not had a full-blown anxiety attack since, but the what happened, it was really weird. Um, so I was laying in the bed in the ER, and all of a sudden, this tingling sensation kind of started up near my heart and head, and then just a wave of tingling just kind of went down my body. Um, and it just felt like my body was almost on fire. And um, my heart rate went through the roof. Um I was starting to sweat like crazy, you know, struggling with my breathing, very lightheaded. And so I actually thought when he said you have an anxiety attack because of heart issues in the family that I was having a heart attack. And he was actually on his way out when it happened. And I then looked at and I felt absolutely horrible. But again, the machine was showing that my heart was running fine. So I kind of looked at the nurse and said, you know, can you tell me what an anxiety attack is? Like, what does it feel like? And she described it. And I said, that's what I just had. And then everything kind of got better. Even though I was still very anxious about a lot of things, I didn't really get to that level again until, of course, we uh, hit the pandemic. And so uh, I think it was near the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, my anxiety anxiety was already elevated, but we were treating me for my depression. Um, And it was near the beginning of the pandemic, I started realizing that, and I, I still struggle with it, you know, I'm very short of breath a lot and everything. And so, um, and it was just coming waves. And so my psychiatrist and I started talking, he said, well, let's get you on anxiety medication. So we've been fluctuating that, trying to figure all that out. Um, but it's still, I mean, I'm was anxious getting prepared for this episode. For example, I was texting Zach a couple of weeks ago and said that, uh, and he, Zach very quickly said, you need to talk about this. Um, I was starting <laughs> to look for resources to share. It was the day we recorded the last episode and, was trying to find some different things. And I was kind of specific in what I was looking for. And then all of a sudden noticed that I was trying to catch my breath um, while looking. And so I just kind of looked at Anne and I said, I'm getting anxious looking up stuff for the episode on anxiety. I think I need to shut my computer. Um, and we both just kind of did that. You know, she's just like, you'll be okay. It's all right. Um, hmm. But then it's, it's interesting. It, like I said, it comes in waves. There are times where everything's okay. And then, uh, like if the stress level of work starts increasing, you know, with the COVID situation getting worse with the Delta variant, that's kind of sent it through the roof. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously during the last election, my anxiety was through the roof, um, all the way up to at least the inauguration and just take, trying to almost take the weight of the world on my shoulders type thing and feeling like I needed to solve the problems and, uh, it was actually when I met with my counselor the other day and, um, it's, we're back to virtual because the last time we met, um, uh, we've met one time face to face and, and then she was exposed. And so we just pulled back, but, um, she could tell the moment we got on the screen together. Um, this was on Wednesday. I was taking a sip of, from my water and she immediately said, okay, what's going on? And I just was like, I'm struggling. My anxiety is through the roof because we've had de- a dean candidates on campus and stuff and all the uncertainty. And um, it's still a, you know, walking up steps and being like, man, I got to catch my breath. Hmm. Talking and realizing I just need to stop for a minute. And actually, you know, I'm recording from home. And Ann usually works in the other room when I'm here. Um, and I, I told her uh, before we all got on, I said, yeah, I'm, 
I just, what I say is I'm really elevated right now. And she said, I can tell, I can hear you breathing, like just taking big breaths and stuff. And, um, and so what I have learned in trying to get ready for this episode is that, uh, you know, and, and this is when I get into like my meditation stuff really does help, but I still need the medication. I mean, it helps too, but that there are different ways to approach anxiety. Some of the things I've learned about it is that, and I've experienced this too, that it can be debilitating where you're just, it's hitting you and you can't do anything. Um, you just feel like shutting down. Um, but I, I've learned a lot through working with the meditation app, 10% happier and listening to their podcasts and the scientists that get on there and these, they did a, a series on anxiety, uh, recently on their podcast and also in the app. And so they would have a scientist do the talk during uh, the app. Uh, and then one of their coaches would do, a a meditation focused on addressing your anxiety. It was like a little course that you could do. And it's been fascinating to kind of learn about what the body does when you are experiencing anxiety and then how some simple strategies like just taking a big breath. And that's why they tell you to breathe when you're starting to have anxiety issues. Um, is to just breathe very, you know, on a count of four or three or four in through your nose and then a count of five or six out through your mouth. Cause I'll mix this up, but it's, you know, the, when you're, you're parasympathetic, so our parasympathetic nervous system is the one, right? That creates the fight or flight or is it sympathetic nervous system? I mix that one up. I like the idea of a parasympathetic. That would be better. Or parasitic. Yeah. That's what it feels like. <laughs> I had it written down and then I lost it. It's the sympathetic. Yes. It's when you're, your sympathetic nervous system is the one that tells you that fight or flight. Which evolutionarily is is a good thing because that's helped our species survive, and so it's something that is necessary for us. And um, but your parasympathetic nervous system can kick in by that simple strategy of doing the breathing, the deep breathing. And the parasympathetic is the one that brings you back right. down, right? right. So yeah. it takes you off of that ledge and brings you back down. Um, hmm. And so those types of strategies have helped. But we also kind of refer to it as the what ifs. So what will happen is when my anxiety is elevated, I'll start thinking of a potential scenario and then I'll continue to do these. Well, what if this happens? And what if this happens? And what if this happens? And I start mm. kind of, we call it spiraling where I just will spiral if I don't realize what it is I'm doing. Um, and that elevates it too. And I'll, you know, I'll get jittery and stuff like that. But I mean, it, it can be a challenge. It's, I think that's one of the things I've always dealt with, with writing, for example, why I get nervous to start writing and sharing it with people is because you know, I've been told by people, uh, professors in the past that I was not a good writer. Um, and then people would be like, well, no, you're, you're doing fine. You just need to get out of your head. And so that's, you know, when the, your inner critic kicks in and all that kind of stuff. And so it's, uh, interesting, I guess you can say, and I'm learning to live with it, but it's you know, tough. And I, I will say this too, and I would love to hear others, to, um, their thoughts on it, on any of their personal experiences. But I found when I was looking up for resources for this episode, that my, I was purposely being biased in my searches because I was trying to find the role of religion and anxiety and how religion cre can create anxiety. <laughs> like I was almost looking for something bad yes. um, just because I don't have the experiences as you know, some of you've talked about and you know, the, the way you were raised and your experiences with your early, early experiences with religion. I didn't have any of that. And so I just was kind of curious, you know, some of the more fundamentalist perspectives on um, anxiety, but mostly what I would find out would be around like mental health. But then I started actually finding two studies showing that, the role of religion with respect to anxiety, mental health is a positive thing or can be positive, um, that it can actually help people with their anxiety, their depression and mental health overall, which I wasn't surprised by that, but I thought it was interesting that I really str struggled finding something to confirm my bias. And so that's where I, I'm curious if others can share their experiences, because I would love to know, is that just a pure bias? I mean, one thing I did read talked about, obviously your perspective on God of if you believe in a God that, you know, gets angry at you and smites you and, um, and that if you're not being good, that you're going to get, you know, hurt or something like that from God, or that if you did something, you know, if, 
you were hurt, for example, physically, it's because God's mad at you. Those types of things. If you have that perspective on God, then that obviously can have a, a negative impact on your mental health. Whereas if you have the perspective of a more loving God, then uh, you have a more positive impact on your mental health. But that was mostly what I could find. Yeah, the literature on like religion and mental health is really interesting because so much of it, um, I think, I think just the like intuitive gut response of a lot of people um, and, and researchers included is that religion helps and um, you know does w- what you're saying, Ian. There's like these positive links, and that is um, like an overwhelming feature of that like body of literature um, on religion and health. But there are you know, uh, many like really, really good researchers who are like, hold on a second. (laughs) It's not, it's not a monolith. Like religion does have those associations with um, like those positive correlations with mental health, but that that's not the full picture. And um, some of the examples you gave about like images of God are definitely do have those um, correlations with like, you know, stress and anxiety. And, and also just like the idea that you're being watched, um, whether that's by another person or by um, God, that like impacts people's behaviors too. And um, if, if you think mm-hmm. that you're being watched, um, then you're likely to behave in different ways that are more, you know, um, in line with what you consider to be your like moral ideals and that's you know got its own like double-edged sword of like people doing what they think is the right thing but there's also maybe a little bit of like paranoia that starts to creep in and that has its own Mm -hmm. kind of impact on on mental health um and and so yeah it's it is really interesting and i i can definitely say like my very early like childhood experiences of anxiety were completely centered around the concern about like not going to hell. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it it made me um, actually pretty obsessive as a child of like, like constantly checking in with my parents about, you know, like, uh, you know, oh, oh, I didn't tell a lie today. Like, you know, like having feeling like I needed to treat my mom as like a a priest, I guess, and like confess everything to her and to God <laughs> in this way that was probably really annoying to my parents, honestly. Um, but I, I, I went through a, a period of time as a kid too, where I, um, I prayed every night for salvation because I thought I wasn't doing it right. And that I just was like so worried. I would sometimes like go to go to bed like sobbing <laughs> because I was so worried about it. And so that was a, uh, you know, I, I had not yet at that time in my life experienced like a panic attack or something like that. Um, like the that would be an experience I would have like much later. Um, but the like when I think about my earliest experiences of anxiety, uh, that's what I think of. So for sure, Hmm. related to like God and afterlife um, conceptions. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, Kendra, the notion of if God is watching or someone else is watching. Uh, As I said before we got on to record this episode, um, Anne is usually working in there. And I was telling her that my anxiety was elevated and she said she could hear my breathing and she actually offered to go upstairs. Um, And I did not ask. But she just kind of said, would it be helpful if I'm upstairs in the upstairs office so that it doesn't, you don't feel like I'm, you know, just listening in. And I was like, well, it's, you know, it's up to you. I'll, I'll be fine. But um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And, yeah. and it is helpful, right? I mean, it, when I have my online counseling appointments, I, the other one I had the other day was in my office at work. And so I was kind of initially like, okay, I'm really struggling right now. If I break down, are people going to hear it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's like those. So we're ruining our children (laughs) with elf on a shelf. is what you're saying. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Elf on the shelf is the most dangerous thing that has happened 
in the past <laughs> decade. I want only post 9-11 could we have gotten away with Elf on a Shelf and like surveillance in your home. And that's a good thing. Yeah, Adam, I want you to unpack that a little bit. Why do you say it's the most dangerous thing? Because so <laughs> Elf on the Shelf is inviting people to bring the Panopticon into their home. So the Panopticon was a model of a prison where there was one guard who was put in the middle so that they could constantly observe the prisoners without the prisoners knowing they're being observed. Oh. Right? So the prisoner always mm-hmm. thinks they're observed whether they are or not. Right? It was it was a specific model of an English prison that Jeremy Bentham came up with. And it was intentionally meant to create this feeling of being watched such that you wouldn't do bad things. Elf on the Shelf is just a version of making a prison for children before Christmas so that they don't misbehave. (laughs) Because the abstract of Santa Claus watching you secretly through some kind of snow globe or something. So instead, not enough. We're going to put this elf right there looking down upon you all of the time. And, you know, because he moves, you don't know if he's looking at you at any given moment. Is this the equivalent of putting saints and icons in your house as a visual rep- no, reminder? No, I, I don't think it is. Like, I, I do think there's God. actually like a difference with this, which is why I think, you know, okay, what's the elf difference? on the shelf is from the devil. But so you saying you don't have Elf on the Shelf in your house? Is that no, what you're absolutely us? not. There's no Elf on the Shelf in our house. Look, if you want like a oh. creepy, crazy Christmas holiday, we're into Krampus, but we're not into Elf on the Shelf. You would be. Man, I really want to go put <laughs> Elf on the Shelf in Adam's office when he's. I not swear there. to God, if you do, I will bring <laughs> the reign of terror upon you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, if any of your fellow faculty are listening to this episode, <laughs> yeah, and it's not Kendra, <laughs> yeah, right, we'll do some collaborating. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I know, there are people who will plan this now. No, I like, but like, <laughs> to me, what's interesting and like what's different about like having like the image of a saint or something like that in your house, right? Is like if the function of you know something like a, a holy relic is to induce a sense of like. I'm moving closer to this ideal that's very different than the elf on the shelf that is there to objectify you, right? So if we don't play like the Bentham way, right, we can play with like the Jean-Paul Sartre way with elf on the shelf, right? So Jean-Paul Sartre in, in Being and Nothingness has this famous like keyhole passage, right, where there's like a, a guy, of course he's a guy, who is squatting in a doorway, like squatting outside of a closed door. And he's like looking through the keyhole at someone. And he's immersed, totally immersed in this experience as though it's just him and this other person. And Hmm. then suddenly he hears footsteps and it disrupts, right? And it's this example in philosophy of, um, of, of realizing that if you are an observer, then you also can be observed, right? But it does these variety of other things too, right? Because the observer makes the person in the closed room into an object. They're not treated as a whole human being. They're the thing that is seen by the peeping Tom in the hallway, right? And when we recognize suddenly that we've been objectified in that way, it creates this feeling of anxiety and nervousness um, of being made less than human, right? So Elf on the Shelf makes our children into things that are less than human. (laughs) That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I like to point this out because people who are like generally into Elf on the Shelf would never want to admit that they're making their children less than human. And I'm like, ha! <laughs> says the guy who celebrates the German Christmas monster. Yeah, but I'm very straightforward about that and no one's surprised by it. Doesn't Krampus eat children? He puts children? them in a bag and beats them. <laughs> That's so much better than just the elf casually washing. 
<laughs> right, but <laughs> you're right. You're right. That's much better wow. than Big but Brother. He treats you're, them as yeah. a subject, right? Oh. <laughs> oh, this is the weirdest justification for cramping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ethical gymnastics happening here. <laughs> <clears throat> but I, I, I mean, I, I do think like what what's interesting about this, right? Is like, um, so like if you talk about like your narratives, Ian, of like feeling anxiety. Mm-hmm. Many of them are related to this sort of like sense of being observed, right? Which is like a long tradition in philosophical discourse. This like way in which we get observed by someone or like Kendra talking about how God is or isn't watching, right? God becomes the ultimate peeping Tom, right? Mm. Turning us into something that's less than human. That's going to produce a lot of anxiety and like kind of appropriately so. Also, that's a terrible God, but Mm -hmm. that's maybe a different (laughs) tangent. But like, tune in another time. (laughs) (laughs) Adam ruins your God. (laughs) That's clearly going to be the little segment I add at the end here pretty soon. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, but but I do think like what what's interesting to me is like that. There's this like we. I feel like a lot of times when I have talked with folks who either feel or experience anxiety, there's this sense that it's this very like personal thing. And to me, what's very interesting is that when I think about anxiety, it is this like thing that is put upon someone, right? There's this way in which they have been, situation has created a system in which they feel like they're less than a person. So I have a question. Um, So I have no experience with anxiety. Um, other than your garden variety. Um, I, as we said last episode, my cup of tea is depression. And I know that depression is like sadness without an object. Um, it's like, um, it's a it's a tumbleweed emotion that has no roots and it thrives on openness and uh, it just exists without something, without a reason for it to exist. What is it about anxiety? Is it like um, fear without a definite object? Is is there a difference between being anxious and having an anxiety disorder? Uh, what is what is the distinction that you make in in those terms? So, um, there definitely is a a difference between you know there as you said garden variety anxiety that pretty much everyone experiences. I think, and then an anxiety disorder. Um, I I can't tell you the clear distinction between the two. Um, I think it's at least for me personally. You know, yes, I've I've experienced just the regular anxiety you get of like uncertainty and things like that. What happens with me is that I will then, as I said earlier, kind of spiral. I'll take it the next step of, Mm. you know, if I'm feeling uncertain about something and I'm not able to recognize that I'm starting to do that and be mindful of, this is where my meditation has really helped a lot, right? If I'm not been Mm. mindful of this is what I'm starting to experience in my mind, um, then I will play over many scenarios of what could happen, which rarely do any of those scenarios come true. Um, And then also rarely is there anything to even support me coming up with these scenarios, like from prior experiences, right? Um, At least for me personally. And so that's, that's how it plays out for me. And, you know, the the anxiety medication that I'm on does help like just with that overall feeling in my body. Um, But we've had to work with it a lot throughout the pandemic, especially. So it sounds like your sympathetic nervous system goes into the fight or flight. You get pumped full of cortisol and all those mm-hmm. sorts of superhero chemicals, but then the parasympathetic doesn't kick in and then you don't get those washed out of you Correct. and they just keep on running and running and running and running and then wear out all of your synapses and makes it then hard to function. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I also deal with depression and so there are, um, have been times where I will, as you mentioned earlier, Zach, and we talked about in the last episode that I will get that overwhelming sense of sadness, which just hit. Right. Um, mm. but like, 
the anxiety, I think, is what has driven me at times to being more angry about things um, because I start to take it personally. You know, when I see things happening in the world, I take them personally. And that's something that I've seen you on Twitter. Yeah, that I've really worked <laughs> trying to work on not doing and knowing that that's something that you know, I work on with my counselor and with, with my meditation is relearning how to not take everything so personally. And it's always been a struggle for me, but I think throughout the pandemic, you know, as I've talked about several times, I've learned a lot about people that I thought I knew. Um, and then when you just see the way society has behaved or members of society behaved, and it's just led to being just more on edge at times. And so when it's already a little elevated and then we're looking for a new Dean, for example, that adds stress right? Um, teaching a new prep for the first time. Like this is the first time I'm teaching this class. I've got two sections of it. I'm doing fine, but that raises anxiety because I love teaching and I want to do a really good job. And so even my counselor the other day was just kind of saying like, you know, and this is what's helpful with her. Um, she has her PhD. She was married to an academic. Um, so she kind of understands the academy, uh, very well in higher ed. And so she just the other day was just like, Ian, like you're, you're taking everything way too seriously. Um, and the moment she said that it kind of kicked in the parasympathetic nervous system, making, reminding me that, right. I am right. So, but there are times when I get to that point where it's, I need to hear it from someone else other than myself, because mm -hmm. I feel like I'm having the internal struggle in my brain. You know, I'm, I'm telling myself, this is not really true, but then another part of my brain is saying, Oh, but it is. And it's like, who's winning at that moment. And so some of the meditations I do um, that, that have been helpful is that because so, uh, one of the things I learned early on when you're dealing with anxiety or, uh, and it was actually from a meditation I did um, that was focused on uh, the media and the news. Um, and they were saying, describing that if you feel charged from the news, right, or in, in general, just anxious about something that a lot of times what happens is, is that um, you're feeling that um, the emotion of anxiety, that feeling of anxiety in your body. And then you're on the second, on top of that, you're frustrated with yourself because you, you got anxious that a lot of times that happens. And so some of the meditations I've done have really helped me realize that allow the anxiety to happen. Don't get mad at myself for the anxiety. That's one of the issues that does happen is that I will get frustrated that I'm getting anxious about a situation. I will then spiral out of control and when I finally realized, okay, anxiety, you're there to try to protect me. It's almost kind of give it a uh, persona of just saying, welcome to the party. I know what you're doing, but I am in charge. You can sit there in the room and make sure I'm safe, um, which is the whole point of anxiety is to protect us from fight or flight, right? But I'm in charge. And so visualizing it has helped, but there are times where I just, I forget to do that. There's like a long theological tradition, long-ish theological tradition that talks about like a distinction between anxiety and fear, specifically like in those terms, right? So mm -hmm. like um, fear has a definite object and anxiety doesn't, right? It's this sort of like quick categorization. So I'm afraid of the cat that will jump onto my face in the middle of the night. <laughs> But it's a which death, happens, right? Which happens and is is a legitimate fear, right? <laughs> I mean that that seems that seems totally fine, right? Um, but it's like it's directed to a specific object, right? There's a there is like a an identifiable thing to be afraid of, right? Whereas with anxiety, you specifically don't have an object. It it's when you give it an object, it becomes a fear, right? And fear is something that's uh, manageable. I mean, it doesn't feel good. Nobody likes the cat jumping on their face in the middle of the night, but also, right? Like if I know that that's something I'm afraid of, I can do things to mitigate the fear. I can close the door. I can put the cat outside. I can curse at it before I go to bed, right? Whereas like with an anxiety, because it doesn't have that object, 
those typical ways that we manage our fears don't work anymore, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, like in particular theological traditions, right? Like anxiety actually not bad in itself, but becomes like a means of leading towards sin, right? Because it has this okay. unchecked quality. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not to suggest that like anxiety disorders are sin. That is not where I'm right. going with this. But right, like it does have <laughs> this like place in the religious Thank tradition. You. <laughs> you know, speaking of the religious traditions, there are in just about every religious tradition that I, at least I know of, there are a number of rituals that people do um, that get them generally closer to the divine or whatever they call it and um, release some of this uh, pent-up anxiety that they have. This sorts of things that keep people coming back and they, they kind of all fall into two categories that do essentially the same thing to the brain. Um, the one category is the sorts of religious activities that overload the, the arousal part of the brain. So this is the sort of thing that you might have where there's like dancing, uh, ritual dancing where they dance for an hour and they jump around. There's bu- been a bunch of revivals in the United States of, of like uh, there was there was one where people just laughed for hours, um, or where people jump or you know they do something physical. You think of like the Pentecostal worship services now or some of the frenetic dancing drums, the sorts of things that get your arousal system going so much that it begins to kind of shut down. And uh, when it does that, it starts to shut down uh, the left and right parietal lobes. Mm-hmm. Um, your sense of spatial awareness is mostly in the right parietal lobe, and your sense of bodily awareness is mostly in the left parietal lobe. And uh, so as they shut down, your brain starts to send signals back, like it, it skips them all together. You kind of lose a sense of self. Anyone, you, you don't even have to be religious. If you're at like in a stadium, and something amazing is happening in front of you and you jump up out of your seat and you're with everyone in the room and you're jumping around and clapping and you kind of forget where you are, right? You forget your spatial awareness. And when that happens, the the, the brain that sends messages back towards the back, towards the, the, the more ancient parts of your brain, the lizard brain. And that then sends it back up to the front where it creates this neural loop that goes back and forth and back and forth and uh, just misses entirely your spatial awareness. And in so doing, gets you out of yourself. It, it, it gets you out of your sense of space, sense of self, out of your ego, out of your uh, those loops in the the crazy consciousness part of your brain that is uh, ruining your, the rest of it. Um, and so that's the one way. The other way is that it overloads the quiescent systems, the, the, the calm down parts. And this is what you're talking about, Ian, with uh, meditation. And meditation is, is in every corner of the world. Um, you know, people have chants, they have smells, mm-hmm. they have sounds, they do... Um, what I, you know, my sensory deprivation tanks that I love so much. It's all about just when when you overload the quiescent part of of your system, it does the same sort of thing where you start to lose a sense of self and a sense of place. And people who meditate for long periods of time talk about feeling like they don't exist in their body anymore. And when you can transcend that and create this neural loop from the front to the back and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, it creates all kinds of good feelings of happiness and it gets you out of those, uh, those thinking loops that cause a lot of the anxiety and depression. And, and so religious traditions have done this in just about all of our traditions around the, around the world throughout time that we either overload or we deprive and in both of those, we lose a sense of self, a sense of ego. We get out of our heads and uh, we call it a sense of transcendence. We call it God being div- being connected to the divine, to the spirit, to whatever it may be. But it is essentially doing this very specific thing in your brain that uh, we all just kind of stumbled on and gave uh, theological trappings mm-hmm. to. Or according to... Um, How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg, which is where I got all of that from. And it's a wonderful book. You should read it. It's on my list. Ian, I I was just curious, uh, because you've talked um, several times about 
just like the the fact that you do meditation and mm-hmm. um but i i don't think i can remember you describing before like how like what what was the first time like for you like how did you discover that this was actually going to be something that was an important practice for you um in particular to help manage anxiety and like how did you stumble into it and what was it like when you first started versus um doing it now and sort of developing that skill right so um you know i first started thinking more about it it was uh, back in 2019 probably of something to be thinking about and it was actually because uh so when i went to um did the led co-led the study abroad in Germany in fall of 2018 that by the time being away from Anne and the kids for six and a half weeks that I, that I ended up depressed um, and really struggled. And so when we, even when they came to visit, we spent time together, we came back and I was, I was, my depression came back and I was really struggling. And so that's actually how we started seeing that counselor. Um, You know, we, we actually went together uh, just because I was really struggling and I was making some comments and the counselors looked at me, she's like, you're, you're depressed. Um, she says, you know, that's what's going on here. So she took me on as a client. Um, and she is someone, you know, again, and I known about meditation, but always kind of had this idea of I'm so ADD. There's no way I could do anything like that. You know, my, I'm all, my mind's always going, how in the world could I ever do that? So I had that false notion of what it is. I was supposed to shut off my brain and somehow make that happen. And, and she just would kind of talk about meditation, you know, not just relying on, on medication, but there are other strategies and, you know, making sure you have like going outside and stuff like that. And so I still do those things. I still exercise, you know, a lot. And, um, but so she was kind of the one that was encouraging it and I was looking at different apps and then, um, it was, um, right when the pandemic started, you know, I'd slowly been getting into the practice with a different app, a headspace, and I liked it. Um, but it was right when the pandemic started, my mom was the one who told me about, uh, 10% happier, the book by Dan Harris and him having an on air live anxiety attack. And so mm-hmm. I was still kind of uncertain of it. And then when I read that book and saw all of the work he did in determining the science behind meditation, um, kind of helped me go into that route. And then I just enjoyed the coaches, um, and started realizing that, Hey, they're First of all, my original notion of meditation is not accurate, um, especially mindfulness meditation of just realizing that your brain thinks is what happens. Um, and so the mindfulness part is recognizing when a thought comes in and say, okay, and then get back to like your breathing and counting your breath. Um, and then they just continue to explore new topics. And I started kind of realizing that, you know, one day I was feeling, uh, it was near the beginning of the pandemic and just anxious about stuff. And I had the app open and typed in anxiety just out of curiosity and saw all these meditations focused on how to address your anxiety. Um, I one day was feeling sad and I just typed in like sad and all of it, uh, just, I mean, all these different options. And then even, um, dealing with procrastination, productivity. Uh, (laughs) one thing that I really struggle with is, um, um, you know, my inner critic. And so I really listened to a lot of great ones about how to handle your inner critic and to recognize that again, just like with anxiety to give it a persona, welcome to, and what I loved was that, um, it was making them fun, like hmm. treating them as, a, um, you know, giving them, uh, treating them like a person and say, Hey, welcome to the party. Let's do this. But I remember I'm in charge. Um, and it would be lightly guided meditations to help me with that. And so it's just something that I started realizing is helpful. Um, and then when, you know, um, Zach, Rachel and I chatted for a little bit last week, um, Rachel actually said to me, she said, have you been doing, you know, I've been doing mindfulness meditation throughout the day because there's different ways you can do it. But she just kind of said, have you been sitting and focusing? You even for 10 minutes, have you been doing that? And I said, no. And she said to me, I, you know, I could tell. Um, and then she realized that, and she helped me remember that when I do that, even for 10 minutes, that how different that makes my day, um, of just shutting everything down and just being with myself for 10 minutes and breathing. So that's kind of how I got into it. And now I obviously I rave about it because it helps. Yeah, totally. 
No, it's good to hear so. the the story behind it because I know that's yeah. been a, a part of your practice for a long time. Yeah, thank you. Does anyone else have anything they want to share about any experiences or? I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly like an experience to share, but I, I just, I also meditate and, um, it's definitely, um, I mean, I think it's like a life changing practice. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's not a, a particular story, but a very brief and loud endorsement of <laughs> meditation practices for <laughs> not just anxiety, but I think, yeah, like whatever kind, there's so many different kinds that, yeah, it's it's just kind of amazing. Like 10 minutes is not that long. Like people who are really expert meditators who do like hours of meditation in a session it makes you feel kind of silly when you when you're starting out doing like five or ten minutes Mm -hmm. um like that's definitely how i feel and like the longest i have probably done which again is i think i like disrupt my practice with various life things and then feel like i have to start over at the five minute mark but like 15 20 minutes i think 30 minutes might be the longest that i've done it but even like five minutes sometimes feels like forever to sit there um but it's it just like changes everything, um, mm-hmm. and it's just really cool the way that that works, um, and like the way that it, you know, lights up your your brain and your body to to be in the world and in a different way. Um, and yeah, I just I love that that is that is a way for both um, like religious and non religious people to to find like grounding um Mm -hmm. and yeah it's just i think a really a really beautiful beautiful practice yeah i the longest i've done for a sitting is is 30 minutes yeah um but it was not solo uh one of the coaches does something on youtube and it's very lightly guided but i still i do that does not happen often I'll do um, sprinkles of it throughout the day sometimes. Yeah. Just a quick three-minute one here or five-minute one there. But yeah, I, I, there are times, as you said, Kendra, where I'm doing one and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is taking forever. Um, <laughs> or then I'll think, do I really want to do a 10-minute meditation right now or something? And what I have started to do is that when I am realizing I need to do a meditation um, and I, even I'm thinking to myself, oh, three minutes, can I spare it? I need to do a meditation. Like yeah. that is, mm-hmm. that is a sign, a signal to myself of shut everything that you have to do meditation. Yeah. Like if I feel like I can't even take three minutes for myself because I'm going to worry about productivity, I realize I'm, it's time. Right. Yeah. So totally. Didn't, uh, Luther, Martin Luther have a quote like that, that, uh, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Um, I shall pray. Yeah. I'm so busy now that if I did not spend three hours each day in prayer, I could not get through the day. That's what it was. Wow. I, I think it's interesting after like talking about depression, talking about anxiety, right? There's this, I, I think there is a, a temptation as we have been able scientifically to better explain how it is that particular religious practices create changes for us. To say, well, if I can do that with medication, hurrah, that's just as good or better. Hmm. And I think it's really interesting as like, you know, like both Zach and Ian, you've both like spoken about this, right? Like there's very clearly to anyone who's really wrestling with these issues, a really deep sense to say like, that is not a viable solution, right? This is that place where like medicine and religious practice meet, whereby you know, you, you get a little kick in the right direction and then you have to to take on the work of doing the thing to maintain, right? Mm-hmm. Or to to move in a, a way that you feel is positive. And I think so often, particularly in like religion and science discourse, it can it can really quickly turn into the like, well, science now makes the religion piece irrelevant. And I think it's really interesting that this is an area where it's really clear it doesn't. And it's kind of right. kind of interesting to see how that plays out. 
Well, I just learned about a book that just came out by, uh, of course, I just bought it, uh, David Destino, who's a psychologist, um, How God Works, the Science Behind the Benefits of Religion. And um, I mean, it just came out, I think, this week. But what I found interesting is that um, he kind of has talked about that, you know, um, a little story they put, you know, psychologists are learning what religion has known for years. And he was saying that, you know, this is not looking into the theology aspect of religion, but instead the day-to-day practice of religious faith. So mm. in some you know, situations, you know, with meditation, for example, and what that does to the brain and those types of things. And, you know, I think some of this will align with Newberg's work too, Andrew Newberg's work too, but what they're studying, I've not started reading the book, but just what their studies are showing about that community and how that helps and how religion has known that for such a long time. And now science is able to show actual evidence based on science that kind of supports it. Right. And so, as you said, Adam, it's showing that there does not need to be that disconnect between the two or of, okay, well now that you're medicated because science understands the role of this medication, you don't need to worry about that religion stuff anymore um, of realizing Mm -hmm. that both help. So, yeah. And Newberg also clarifies that it's not enough to believe in a God for it to be beneficial, that actually if you, if the God that you believe in is a vengeful or angry or violent God, it actually um, is detrimental to your eventual mental health and brain development. They found that people who believed in a loving God um, had more neural net, uh, had had a more complex neural networks and were more empathetic and were happier people overall, whereas people were underdeveloped in their brain um, if they were raised on an angry god. Mm. And there might be some correlation and causation thing happening there. I'm not sure. These are small sample sizes, but I can tell you anecdotally that makes sense to me. You become what you worship. Yeah, I, I think another piece too that sometimes is. Um, sometimes is highlighted in this research and sometimes not is that the the piece of community like the religious community that you're in is a significant source of support and that a lot of the positive correlations uh, between like religion and mental health um it it looks like on the surface that it might be like entirely about um you know god concepts or afterlife concepts but what is sometimes like left behind in 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 some of the religion and health literature in particular um, w- with like psychologists who are not like paying as much attention as they should to like social factors is um, is the fact that people are usually not like in isolation with these with this like you know belief piece of faith and that there's also this like whole community behind them. Um, not always, but you know, a lot of people like going to church or whatever religious congregation and that, that, that has a, a huge like positive correlation with these, you know, good health outcomes. Um, and, and also that people who are, you know, on, on the other hand, people who are healthy and generally like able-bodied to like get around um, are more likely to show up at places like, you know, church or other like social functions and people mm-hmm. who, um, you know, are debilitated in some severe way might not be able to to get in get in the door of um of a, a religious institution or, or like anywhere beyond their home if they're like bedridden or something like that. So there's like other external like social factors that also are an important part of the story when we talk about like correlations between uh, religion and health and, you know, and, and mental health, but like health in general. Um, that's just like an interesting part of the the research narrative that you have to kind of dig to see, like, are they paying attention to that or not? Do you have any final thoughts, Ian? Well, so I wanted to read a quote, um, and I'm going to mess up her name. So um, this is a book I was talking about earlier, uh, See No Stranger, A Memoir and Manifesto of Revolutionary Love by Valerie Kaur. Kaur? I don't K-A-U-R. I'm not sure if how to pronounce it. But um, what, I've, what I've learned and, and what we've known is that even pre-pandemic, that whenever we get around uh, – presidential election 
and this is even pre 2020. This is 20, 2016, 2012. Ann and I've been together since, um, 1999 that as I started paying more attention to stuff. So even like with the 2008 one, 2012, that as we would get into that, like up to the election and get very close, I would delve in more into the politics and really start paying attention and get frustrated easily and things like that. And so, um, one of the things we've learned throughout all this or that I've learned sometimes with strategy is that if I start getting into, and it's more social media than anything, if I start paying attention to it too much, I will get elevated. My anxiety will go up. I'll start really struggling. Um, so, you know, I will not listen to the news as much. Now I listen to music in the drive or podcasts on the drive and not listen to news anymore just because I know that's what elevates me and I'll pay attention to it. to have an idea. But the thing is, is, you know, I was saying earlier about, one of the issues when you're dealing with mental health is that when you do things like this, like for me, the strategy of not listening to the news, I feel like that make that I feel weak, right? That it's like, why am I not strong enough to be able to do this? Um, and that is a, a thing of, for me and I really struggle with it. And so I, I may get emotional reading this. I'm sorry. But um, so when I open up her book and before it even gets to the introduction chapters, the page right before it. Um, so I'll just read it. Uh, the book, this book is for anyone who feels breathless. Maybe moving through the world, through this world in your body is enough to make you feel constriction in your chest. Maybe you're holding someone close to you who is struggling and suffering. Maybe you are reeling from the latest mass shooting or the refugee crisis at the border or the looming threat of climate change or the blistering pace of a global pandemic. Maybe like me, you are breathless from all of the above. I thought my breathlessness was a sign of my weakness until a wise friend told me what I wish to tell you. Your breathlessness is a sign of your bravery. It means you are awake to what's happening right now. The world is in transition. (laughs) Sorry, I just, it's tough. Good. But uh, I'm gonna, I wanna print that and just uh, bookmark or something, just have it in my wallet, right. Or my back and just, cause right when I read that, I was like, Oh my God, that's me. So yeah, that's how I want to end. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that Ian. I love you guys. I hope more people. <laughs> <laughs> we love you too, Ian. <laughs> So, Zach, tell us about Dead Christians. <laughs> oh, man, this is such an awful transition now. <laughs> what you got? <laughs> uh, hold on. Just everyone take a moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, take a moment. <sighs> Get the parasympathetic nervous system going for us. Oh, yes. because this is I've been super one. excited for Dead Christian Story <laughs> Me Hour. Me too. <laughs> I feel like I need to maybe get some popcorn and a cup of coffee or something. And... So this is the part of the show where one of our hosts um, shares a special segment. This is only the second time we've done this. But uh, my special recurring segment is going to be the Dead Christian Story Hour, um, <laughs> which I feel like needs a jingle, right? Uh, the Dead Christian Story Hour. I don't know. We'll come up with a jingle in some future episode. There we go. Thank yeah. you, Kendra. Um, I say it like that because I love reading stories of over-the-top hagiography, which is a genre of writing in which people are writing about dead holy people in their tradition. And I don't say this is a story of saints because a lot of these people never got officially canonized. Um, And some of that will become uh, evident in the future. Um, Plus, I think the whole process of canonization is a little rigged anyway, but that's a, that's another episode. Maybe we need to have a Catholic on here who can um, outweigh my Protestant um, prejudices. But I want to tell you a story today about a woman named Christina the Astonishing. First of all, great name, right? Yeah. So this woman was born in 1150 in the county of Lune of the Holy Roman Empire. She's from Lune, 
Um, she was an orphan at the age of three, and then she died at 21. <sighs> I'm feeling good already. Yeah. Hmm. But the story doesn't end there. Because if it did, that would not be hagiography. Um, so during the funeral mass, she miraculously sat up out of the coffin and flew into the rafters. Wow where she perched there like a pigeon or a gargoyle or something. And she refused to come down out of the rafters because she could not stand the stench of the people in the room. (laughs) The reason being, when she came back from the dead, she could smell sin. Okay? We talk about what superpower you want to have. None of you ever said you wanted to smell sin. Yeah, no, thank you. I have no idea what sin smells like, but she hated it Um, because she says when she died, she was given the grand tour of heaven, hell and purgatory from God, you know, and uh, as one does. And then God gave her the option. He said, look, you're 21. You're young. You can come up here. You can party with me up in heaven or you've seen those folks in purgatory. Right. If you want to go back down to earth and do penance for them, then I'll accept that. And so they can get out of jail faster. And so she's like, you know what? That seems like the holy thing to do. I'm a super nice girl. I'm going to go back and do some penance for the dead people. And so when she woke up, she could smell sin, which I guess came from being a part of heaven for a little while. And she hated it so much that she used to hide from people. She'd climb trees and live like in the top of the tree for long periods of time. She would jump inside of ovens and cupboards to get away from people. She used to hang out in the rafters of the church. There were a couple of times where she just flew away, just like Superman, just was like, eh, smelly people, fly away. And so for the next 50 years, she spent her time avoiding people and doing penance for the souls of those in purgatory, which meant praying a lot and also um, abusing herself, taking their punishment. So she used to just sit in fire oh my and scream gosh. in the middle of the town center. Wow, that's a lot. And people would be like, whoa, <laughs> that's a little extra, um, Christina. But then she'd come out of the fire and she'd be totally fine. Or when the waters were frozen in the wintertime, she used to just go swimming in the frozen waters for like a week at a time. They'd be like, oh, there's Christina in the water again. She's screaming again, but she's fine. Or she would go over to the water wheel and she would get herself tangled in it and then go like around and around and around getting splashed in the water and crushed um, in the water wheel. And then she'd come out of that fine too. And people were like, She's kind of holy. She's kind of crazy, but I'm into it. But we love her. And when she was hiding from people, like up in trees and in cupboards and stuff, she couldn't get close enough to like buy food. And so God used to give her special heavenly milk out of her own breasts, which she would drink as her food. And then one time they put her in shackles in the town center because she was being very disruptive, and she was all beaten and bruised, and special healing oil came out of her breasts, which she then rubbed on her wounds and made her better. So in the end, she lived another 53 years, (laughs) died at the ripe old age of 74, a strange and reclusive woman who could smell sin, fly, and was nearly indestructible, with magical breasts. So if anyone from Marvel... (laughs) happens to be listening to the podcast today, please consider Christina the Astonishing for your next character because she already has a superhero name and everything. Wow. And ma- magical breasts, right? So I think they have to figure out a way to, to bring that into the show. I know. She's already she's already perfect. Like, yeah. You don't have to she's change a anything. a really good like, D&D character. it's worth noting by the way that in hagiography people generally tend to embellish the lives of the people who are gone and can't correct it so i should have mentioned that at the beginning (laughs) if you roll a 20 you get holy milk um Mm. for which of the many many wonderful things you described, Zach, was she known for being the astonishing or was it just a like all all together that makes you astonishing? I'm pretty astonished. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. Smelling sin part would have been enough. And then it just kept going. I, I, I'm still dealing. I gotta be honest, the magical (laughs) breast thing. Like I'm really curious how that worked. I figured you'd latch onto that. Yeah. How did that, that well played? Uh, How did that work out? Like, I'm really curious. 
Like, I mean, she lived for 53 years after she died, so I, it worked out pretty well, I guess. Yeah. Magical, but probably saggy. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> also, the the people in charge of the convent where she lived said that she was very well behaved when she was asked to keep it down. Oh. And she listened to authority very well. Nice. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I, my curiosity is still going. This has been the first episode of the Dead Christian Story Hour. Join us in five more episodes in which we will talk about the patron saint of cooking, St. Lawrence, who is called that because he was killed on a gridiron oh. and uh, burned alive. Okay. Exciting. <laughs> I, I can't wait for that one. <laughs> That's you, actually my favorite you, we saint. Definitely, I love no, we definitely saint need a jingle. Lawrence. Uh, yeah, yes. no. we do. Jingle, jingle is going to be appropriate here. <laughs> <laughs>